I want to go back uh, and pick up where we left off a few weeks ago before someone flipped the switch and all of life got so weird, okay? Uh, back in the fall, in November, I think it was, we started a series um, from the Gospel of Matthew that I was simply calling the Kingdom of God because that's really what the entire book of Matthew is all about. And we said that as you read the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, and the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you read through looking for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it will become crystal clear to you that what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom. What he talked about all of the time and what he was about was simply the kingdom of God. So we started in Matthew 4, where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been in chapter 5 in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. I've suggested calling it Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way of being human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. It's really just about God's value system in the kingdom. So we took some time to dig into the first 13 verses of Matthew 5, what we call the Beatitudes. <coughs> and then we talked about uh, Jesus' teaching where he says that we are the salt of the earth. And we talked about what that means. And we said that salt always makes a difference. And then we unpacked verses 14, 15, 16, where Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And to cut to the chase, we said that God's purpose in your current circumstances is always to draw people's attention to your Father in heaven. That God's purpose in your current circumstances is always to draw people's attention to your Father in heaven. And then we talked about Jesus' take on the scripture. We said that Jesus brought a fresh, new, creative way of reading the scripture in light of his coming. So we talked about how to reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament. I'll tell you, if you've ever taken issue with some of the stuff that you read in the Old Testament, I just really encourage you to, to go to our website, go to our podcast, uh, listen to that message. That was on February 16th. Might offer you some freedom and some guidance on how to approach the scripture. And then last time, uh, before we kind of press pause on life, as we know it, way back on March 8th, <clears throat> we talked about Jesus' teaching on truth and nonviolence. And we talked about Jesus' call for us to be people of truth, to tell the truth and to live the truth. And then we talked about injustice and revenge and anger. And ultimately, we said that nonviolence is the way of Jesus. So that's where we've been. All these messages are on our podcast, and they're all on our media player uh, right here on our website, and so I invite you to check those out. Before we go any further and get into today's teaching, let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together in this way, to gather around your word. We ask for uh, your Holy Spirit to come upon our time together to illuminate the truth of Scripture. Uh, God, may it be clear to us how to apply what we hear today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Before we read the next few verses in this teaching of Jesus, um, let's just take a moment. If you want, you can close your eyes. Imagine you are a first century Jew. So you live in, say, Capernaum or Bethsaida or, you know, in a village up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Wherever you live, wherever you live, you live in a militarized zone. Everywhere you go, there are Roman soldiers on the street. It's been 70 years now since the Romans invaded Palestine, and they are wreaking havoc on your economy, on your society, taxes 
are upwards of 80%. The economy is in crisis. Food is scarce. You're living hand to mouth. The Romans are stealing real estate right and left from your parents and your grandparents. On a daily basis, somebody in your town or in your village comes up against the oppression of the Roman Empire. Because of that, rebellion is simmering right under the surface. Maybe some of your friends just joined the Sakari, you know, a group of, quote, uh, dagger men, you know, men who sneak up on the, the Roman soldiers in a crowd and stab them from behind and then disappear into the crowd. Maybe another friend has just joined this new group called the Zealots. They're more like an insurgency. And every Sabbath in the synagogue, you hear stories about war and violence in the Old Testament and the Jewish scripture. You grew up hearing these stories about how God saved your ancestors from the Egyptian oppressors and then the Babylonian oppressors and then the Assyrian oppressor and so on, which causes you to think, but where is God now? That underlying thread of that same scripture is the promise of a coming Messiah. And prophecy after prophecy from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Micah, of a Messiah who will rule not only over Israel, but over the whole world, and in doing so, usher in an age of peace and prosperity. And this is what you keep hearing, but now it's been hundreds of years, and he has yet to make an appearance. Oh, but then... Every few years, a self-proclaimed would-be Messiah comes on the scene, but it's always the same cycle, right? They rally a militia, they weaponize in order to go to war, and before they ever begin to really mobilize, they are crushed by the Romans. And then you hear all of a sudden, with no real fanfare at all, that there's a new rabbi, a new teacher, who's coming to your town. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth, which isn't that far away. And apparently some people are saying that he could be the Messiah, Naturally, you're skeptical. But you just you go just to hear him out, and you, you really can't believe it when you get there. There are thousands of people on a hill near the Sea of Galilee, and he starts to teach. <clears throat> Some of what he's saying, you've heard before because it's in the Torah, but a lot of what he's saying is brand new information. And at first you find it so compelling, right? But then he starts to talk about things like nonviolence, and that makes you feel really uncomfortable. Then he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, because there's so much at stake here, let's work through Jesus' teaching line by line. Verse 43, I've heard that it was said, quote, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we all recognize the first part of that quote, right? Uh, it's from Leviticus 19, but that's not why we recognize it. Leviticus isn't exactly at the top of our devotional reading list, right? We recognize it because more than once, Jesus said the greatest command in all of the Bible, and he would, then he would quote Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he would say, the second is like it, and he would quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
So love for God and love for your neighbor was central to Jesus' vision of how to be human. Through this part of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, we've said that Jesus lays out six examples of this new way to be human, and he saves the best for last. It's, it's really all about love. But notice the command is to love your neighbor, which, of course, raises a very uh, common, interesting question, which is, okay, who is my neighbor? <clears throat> Jesus would regularly have people ask him that. What do you mean when you say neighbor? So, I mean, like, how would you answer that? Is it the person next door? Is it everybody in your apartment building or on your street? Is it your circle of friends? Is it all the people in your church? Is it everyone in your town or in your state? Or is it Americans? I mean, most people in Jesus' day would have said, it's, it's other Jewish people who live near me. And that's kind of was their working definition of neighbor. In verse 43, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. Now, the, the odds are uh, you don't recognize that second part. That's because it's not in the Bible. It's, it's just not in there. Read Genesis to Malachi this coming week. That's a Jewish scripture. That's all these people had. This is what they would be referring to. Just for fun in your free time this week, read Genesis to Malachi and look for it in there, this whole hate, hate your enemy thing. It's not there. So this had become like a Jewish um, idiom that it kind of worked its way into first century lingo. People would say things like, oh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, does Jesus think that this is the right way to read or to interpret Leviticus 19, verse 18? Absolutely not. Verse 44, because he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus 19, verse 18 in context, which I always encourage you to do, you just want to nerd out and do that a little bit. It's actually about that whole passage is about how to make peace with people that you don't get along with. So if you back up even just one verse, it says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. So in context, love your neighbor isn't like some kind of bumper sticker, meme, nice little cliche Love your neighbor as yourself. In context, it's about how to make an enemy into a neighbor through the medium of love. So think about, think about, uh, think about this. Jesus' interpretation of Leviticus 19 and the command to love your neighbor is love your enemy. And I find it interesting. There's a subtle shift here. In verse 43, it's, the quote that Jesus is referring to that had become part of their culture is hate your enemy, singular. But then in verse 44, with Jesus, it's love your enemies, plural. As if Jesus is saying, okay, you need to love all of your enemies. Now, I've been around the church for a long time, and it's fascinating to me how people bend over backwards to cut Jesus' teachings down to size. They do it over and over again. So some people that you hear um, on this one want to make it only about your personal enemy, okay? So this is about your coworker that you're crossways with, or it's about a boss, or it's about a friend that you don't like anymore, or who did you wrong, or it's about you know an ex-spouse or a step-parent or whatever. But somehow some would say it has nothing to say to nations or governments or America or war or diplomatic relations, like it has nothing to say at a political level 
which of course no first century Jew would have ever heard it that way. Like when you hear love your enemies, the first thing that comes to your mind is the Roman soldier that patrols your street and the Roman empire as a whole. But then on the other side, and this is really weird, some people want to make it about political enemies and national enemies, but not personal enemies. I believe it has all sorts of things to say about government and diplomatic relations and all that. And it's speaking on an intensely personal level. It's all of that. It's all of our enemies. And how are we to relate to our enemies? With love. So let's take a minute because this is a little disorienting. Part of the challenge of this is because, <coughs> excuse me, we only have one word in the English language, which sometimes is, is really precise and other times is really, you know, unspecific. It's the word love. We use it for everything from I love God, I love my wife, I love my kids, to I love tacos, right? I mean, same word, different meanings, obviously. Well, the Greek word here is agape, and agape is a love of the will. It's when you bend your will to the good of another person, even if it's ahead of your own, where you will their well-being ahead of your own, even if it comes at great cost to you. So listen carefully. To love your enemy is not to wink at their behavior or to tolerate it even, to act like evil or injustice or oppression or lying or cheating or manipulation or adultery or whatever is, you know, hey, like no big deal. Let's just be nice to each other. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because often the most loving thing to do in a situation like that is to call out their behavior as wrong, as hurtful and for them as much as for yourself, but never with violence or hate rather with nonviolence, and even more than that, with enemy love. Love for them as fellow human beings who are made in the image of God. So how in the world do we do this? Jesus has a few ideas of what I love about this passage. All these kind of uh, case studies that he offers in Matthew 5, he gives us some very practical suggestions. So his first idea is very simple. Pray for them. And he means pray blessing. Pray for the release of good things from God into their life. Or if there's evil, if there's oppression, if there's lying, then pray for repentance, pray for healing, pray for change, pray for heart transformation, but pray for the good of your enemy. And some of you know this from experience. Some of you've been hurt deeply. And then when you were ready, you actually started to pray. And you know from experience that one of the best ways to deal with hate in your heart or bitterness or anger or hurt is to pray for the one that has wronged you, to pray for your enemy for the one who has hurt you. And often it's in praying for your enemy, and it's not always all of a sudden, right? And not all at once, but over time, there's a release of that hate, a release of that anger, a healing for your own hurt. Because oftentimes we've allowed other people to have a power and an authority over our thinking and over our emotions. And it's often people from our past because we're like somehow kind of still living back there. Like we're still stuck. And somebody from your past has a power over your emotional health. Listen, that's not the heart of Jesus for you. The heart of Jesus for you is freedom to live in the moment with love for all. So how in the world do you get there? Well, there's no easy answer to that. There's no formula. But one small step Jesus says is to pray. And then Jesus goes on, verse 44. Here's the why that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Jesus is addressing our motivation. So why should we do this or not do this? What is our driving motivation? Well, there are all sorts of reasons, but really there's only one reason here in Jesus' teaching, and it's only one thing really that matters to him, and it's very simple, because this is what God is like. When we love our enemy, we become more like creator God, who Jesus called Father. And then Jesus looks out at nature, and he makes a very simple observation about the rain. Keep in mind, he's a a first century Jew. He's living in Israel where the northern and coastal regions have hot, dry summers and cool, rainy winters, where the southern areas have hot, dry, arid climate. And it was an agrarian society and the rain was a sign of blessing. So in his world, it was a sign of blessing. And he makes this observation that the rain falls on the evil and the good and the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. So think about that case in point. Here's the weather in Pyongyang, North Korea today. 45 degrees, clear skies. Here's the weather in Moscow right now. 35 degrees, overcast. A little cool, but you know, hey, we've had days like that in April. In contrast, here's Chickamauga, Guatemala, where we serve with our mission teams. We love the people there so much. It is 98 degrees, heat index of 107. And of course, the weather here today, uh, 48 degrees and partly... uh, Pretty sunny. Okay, what does that teach us about the heart of God? Jesus is saying that every time the sun comes up and the rain comes down, that's God loving his enemies. God is the ultimate enemy lover. If you don't believe that, just read the story of Jesus. Go back and revisit the Easter story that we talked about just a week ago. When we love our enemy, we become more like our heavenly father. And now Jesus is not done here. Uh, Here's another idea for how to love your enemy, verse 46. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? He means from the Father. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So again, Jesus picks out two enemies of the Jewish people, two undisputed bad guys in their society. First is the tax collectors, who were the worst of the worst. The tax collectors were Jews, but they were in business with the empire, with the oppressor. And they were enriching themselves off their own people. And then the pagans, and that was, that was not a racist comment in his day at all. All it means is people that are not Jewish, people that are far from God, in their minds in particular, Romans who were immoral and idolatrous people. For us, think, I don't know, people who hold to a different political uh, position than you, or people of a different sexual orientation than you, or undocumented immigrants, or whatever the thing is for you. Here's another little idea from Jesus, just a small step to take. You ready for this? This is so basic, right? He says, greet them. Greet them. Say hi. Say hello. Look them in the eye. Maybe have a coffee with them, you know, when we can do that again. Maybe start a conversation that might actually start a relationship. I think Jesus is saying that if you only love people in your nation, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic class, your political party, you know, your church tradition, whatever the thing is, then you're no better than the tax collector or the pagan. You're just perpetrating the tribalism that's wreaked havoc on our societies for thousands of years. Glenn Stassen, who's from the Fuller Seminary, wrote this in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read this. He said, if we only love those who love us, listen, this is so prophetic for our moment right now. If we only love those who love us, we see only an in-group perspective and because become closed-minded to how others see things. As a result, we are less effective and less powerful 
because we do not sufficiently understand our enemies who wish us harm and so cannot be as effective in persuading them to do what we think is right. And we grow frustrated and blame them all the more. This is the powerlessness of a culture of blame, end quote. Jesus crossed all sorts of social barriers to greet, to say hello, to eat and drink even with tax collectors and pagans. And he gets in all sorts of trouble for this, as you know. And who does he make really mad? Yeah, the Pharisees, the religious conservatives of the day. They're like, to hang out with people like this, really? To eat with them? And you call yourself a rabbi? To hang out with people like that is to approve of them. You just can't do that. You can't do that, Jesus. These people are evil. You can't reason with them. You need to stay away. Don't contaminate yourself. First of all, Jesus was not afraid to stand up against evil and injustice and violence and oppression, right? He was not afraid to risk his own life. At the end, he was killed because he was such a threat to the empire and the religious establishment. He never endorsed or, or condoned evil. He didn't wink at sin, but he wasn't afraid to share a meal, to say hello, to start a relationship, to turn an enemy into a neighbor. Because Jesus' way is to love all with open-ended, indiscriminate, generous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped enemy love because that's what his father is like. Finally comes this line in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, for the week ahead, just a little something to work on. Uh, you know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna pray for our enemies, we're gonna greet them, and then we're just going to uh, what's it say? Be perfect. So, uh, good luck with that one. Have fun with that. I mean, I pretty much got that one down. I've been following Jesus for a while now. I went to Christian school, went to seminary, so uh, all set. Anyway, let me try to offer some uh, clarity on this one. <clears throat> I talk all the time when I'm teaching the Bible about how important context is, and it's especially important here. Verse 48 is not a standalone statement, okay? It is the last line in a teaching on nonviolence and enemy love. So that's how we have to read it, as the last line, as the climax, as the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and enemy love. Because at the end of this chapter, we're going to turn into another topic. So this is kind of the closing statement. The Greek word that's translated perfect means the end goal. It means complete. Um, in context, it could be translated whole, mature, adult, like you've reached full development. In context, Jesus is saying that the end goal of your following him is to grow and mature into the kind of man or woman who is becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father. That's what the word godly means. And the mark of maturity, you want to plot your life? You know, you like, where am I on the journey from immaturity to maturity, from like not like God very much at all to a whole lot more like God? If you want to plot where you are, if that's a spectrum, then it's actually fairly easy. You just map where you stand in relation to your enemies. The less you love your enemy, the more immature you are. And the more you love your enemy, the more mature you are. Because for Jesus... Love is the great litmus test. I think this is why so few followers of Jesus actually take this teaching seriously because so many of us never reach this kind of maturity. We never become the kind of sons and daughters who are like our father, who love not only our neighbor, but also our enemy. And maybe some of you are like, well, I'm brand new to this. I'm not even close. That's okay. It's, it's perfectly fine. But just know that our calling 
is to grow and to mature into the kind of people who turn, who turn our enemies into neighbors through love. Of course, this raises all sorts of questions. I mean, the, the first is like, can this actually work in the real world? The answer is yes, and we are all living proof of it. I love what the Apostle Paul uh, does with his teaching, uh, with this teaching of Jesus in his letter to the church in Rome. Listen to this, Romans chapter five, verse six. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Well, let me just say, that's some impressive writing, and how smart is Paul, right? He says this, we were all enemies of Christ at one point. So how did he win you and me over how did you become a son or a daughter, much less a neighbor? Through violence? Through hate? No, through self-sacrificial, cross-shaped, suffering love. He loved you and me through death into life, into the kingdom of God. He made you his neighbor, and better than that, he made us his sons and his daughters. That's the way of Jesus. And when followers of Jesus go out and do this, man, some beautiful things tend to happen. I love this. I love this from a speech um, by Martin Luther King. <clears throat> Listen to this. I'm just going to read this. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. End quote. That, I think, is what Jesus is all about. And before you get all excited, like, yeah, that's amazing. Where'd you get that quote? Can I have that? I want to share that on Facebook real quick. Just remember, Dr. King died for this. So on one hand, does this work? Well, on one hand, yeah, absolutely. You live out the teachings of Jesus, really good chance that you'll break the chain of evil. But on the other hand, you might not, and you might pay a high price. You know, often one of the main arguments that we hear to Jesus teaching on nonviolence and enemy love is that just this just doesn't work in the real world. You do this kind of stuff and you, you're going to be taken advantage of. People will walk all over you. In the most extreme cases, you might even end up dead. Well, two problems with that. First is the assumption that violence does work. And I would argue that as a general rule, violence works in the short term, but not the long term. Instead, it feeds on its own energy and creates more violence. Whereas nonviolent enemy love usually doesn't work in the short term. 
there's persecution, there's abuse, there's oppression, but in the end, it is our only hope. Whether you agree uh, with that or not, um, here's the main problem. It doesn't matter whether it works for us or not, as we would define that. It is still the call of Jesus on all of his followers. So look at your Bible. Does Jesus promise you that if you do this, if you reject the kind of flight or fight option that we talked about a few weeks ago of either pacifism or violence, and instead you look for a creative alternative solution, if you don't hate your enemy, but you actually love your enemy and pray for them and you try to build a relationship with them, does Jesus promise you that if you do this, everything will work out awesome? Just check it out. Just look at it real quick in that passage. Do you see that anywhere? Now, Jesus' invitation is not to a safe, secure, middle-class life in the United States of America. His call is to what John Ortberg calls spiritual greatness in the divine conspiracy of sacrificial love. I love that. Spiritual greatness in the divine conspiracy of sacrificial love. Jesus' invitation is not to a life where you don't have to worry about death or suffering or pain. It's an invitation to a life where you're not even scared of death itself because you know what's on the other side. So here are a couple questions to wrap this up. First, who are your enemies? Who for you is your enemy? And then secondly, what are you doing to turn them into neighbors? Are you praying for them? If you're ready, greet them, acknowledge their humanity. And I understand if it's somebody who's dangerous or toxic or abusive, I get it. There's some people you can't, you know, do that with in close proximity. So you have to kind of do it from a distance. And honestly, that's fine because this is really about a heart thing. And it's a heart thing for you, really. So what are you doing to turn your enemies into neighbors? Because the way of Jesus is for us to turn our enemies into neighbors, even if it costs us even if it's scary, even if it's dangerous, that's the heart of God. You don't have to do it if you don't want. It's just an invitation. But if you want to grow, if you want to mature, if you want to become more and more like your Father in heaven, if you want freedom in your heart, the call of Jesus is to a life of bold, courageous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped enemy love. That's the call of Jesus. Listen to this.
us Forgiveness is the garment of our courage The power to make the peace we've longed to know Open up our eyes To see the wounds that bind all of humankind May our shattered hearts Greet the dawn of a life With charity and Brother, I'll see my brother.